Good morning. It's January 9th. It is a grim gray morning in New York City. Punishing soaking showers are closing in fast. The area is facing a high wind warning, a storm warning, a coastal flood advisory, and a flood watch. And this is your Indignity Morning Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Skoka, taking a look at the day and the news. The NASA-funded private sector lunar lander that was supposed to, among other things, dump people's cremated remains on the moon is reportedly leaking propellant, which is causing it to burn off the rest of its propellant to try to keep from tumbling and never end, and at current rates is not going to make it to the moon, denying the population of tardigrades that we previously dumped there the chance to feast on incinerated human remains. How will the lunar tardigrades nourish themselves? Maybe our descendants will learn the answer in a few million years. On the front of this morning's New York Times comes another pair of stories in conversation with each other. The lead one on the far right is Israel beginning to narrow focus of Gaza campaign, new phase in the war. Next to it, lest you get your hopes up about any sort of de-escalation, a strike kills a commander of Hezbollah, militia blames Israelis for death in Lebanon. The war gets smaller, the war gets bigger. In other back-and-forth news action, in almost the same place as yesterday's story, leaders reach spending deal as clock ticks. But now below the fold, we get spending deal gets pushed back from far right. As foreshadowed in yesterday's paper, the plans by the nominal leaders of Congress to keep the government open are colliding with the desires of the people who actually control Congress, the far-right Republican House faction that decides whether anyone gets to be Speaker of the House at all, who would find a government shutdown gratifying and entertaining. House Speaker Mike Johnson, the Times writes, finds himself in a predicament similar to the one that led to the ouster of Kevin McCarthy last fall. Overseeing a minuscule majority while facing a potential government shutdown and having to cut a deal with Democrats in the Senate and the White House that is certain to draw opposition and an outcry from the far right. The Times can just hold open that left-hand column on the front page because it's hard to see how this story won't just keep writing itself over and over again. Also on page one, the Times has sent Jonathan Weissman, again, the guy who got in trouble for his cavalier declarations on Twitter that non-white Democrats didn't count as Southerners or Midwesterners, to explain and explore the political identities of the American people. Here specifically, what he's looking at is, as the extremely overwrought headline puts it, why Iowa turned into a beacon that burns red after deep blue. A remarkable swing in Midwestern views on the GOP. One answer, of course, is the ever-increasing power of white identity politics among Republicans. Another answer, the one that the story focuses on, is that anyone in Iowa who gets an education packs up and moves to Minneapolis or Chicago. On page A11, there's an update on the still-confusing saga of the disappearing Secretary of Defense. In what seems like an accidental tribute to how tangled the whole story is, the Times account begins, Four top aides to Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III were informed last Tuesday that he had been hospitalized a day earlier, but did not notify the White House until two days later, the Pentagon said on Monday. That's it. That's the lead. That's the clearest explanation of the news. All you got to do is mark down last Tuesday, a day earlier, two days later, and Monday, and you'll have whatever the time frame is. Still no word on what the elective medical procedure was that went wrong, and I still can't decide whether to be frightened or reassured by the fact that the White House lost track of the Secretary of Defense for a few days. There's a lot going on in the world right now, and it seems like the most high-powered and expensive military on the planet should probably be under some supervision. But as a child of the Cold War, I'm conditioned to think of the military chain of command as basically a bunch of Dobermans straining at the leash, only with nuclear missiles instead of teeth as what they're prepared to sink into somebody. So it's sort of nice to think that the whole thing can just curl up and take a nap for most of a week. And on page A13 at the bottom, there's a look at 
Donald Trump's motion to dismiss the charges against him in Georgia, which does not mention the part of the motion that social media is cranked up about, in which he accuses the prosecutor of keeping a lover on the payroll of the investigation, dwelling instead more on questions of presidential immunity, which are also the story notes being aired this morning in federal court in Washington about the criminal charges he faces there. The Times writes, Mr. Trump's lawyers have argued that allowing a president to be held criminally liable for acts committed in office would violate the separation of powers principle and would constrain the president's exercise of executive judgment through threats of criminal prosecution. Boy, what kind of nightmare scenario would that be if the president had to decide what they could or couldn't do based on whether or not it was a crime? Unimaginable. How dare they even suggest it? That is the news. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Indignity to keep us going. Put on your boots and pack your umbrella if you're going out there. And if all goes well, we will talk again tomorrow.